Jordan, thank you so much for that heartfelt prayer that uh, I think I can speak on behalf of everyone here. We receive together as the prayer to help us as we dig into God's Word. And I am grateful to be here this morning. If, if some of you are new here, you may not realize it, but we're uh, on the tail end of a summer series um, that Pastor Todd uh, called The Means of Grace, subtitled God, Gen- God's Generous Care for Our Souls. And week after week, we've been kind of taking different ways of looking at it. Uh, this is the ninth of ten sermons. Uh, Pastor Todd will be uh, here next week to close it out, but I have the privilege today uh, to take this sermon. And as I begin, I just want to kind of put out there a little bit of an admission to you. Uh, Maybe you can relate to me uh, on this. Um, Over the last three years as a Christ follower, I have had some seasons where my love for the Lord, my leaning and trusting into Jesus, uh, my, even my experience of the sense of his presence has really been powerful. And, you know, that place you want to be. And I've also had, over the last three years, some pretty deep valleys where it was as dry as bone. Now, I think... If we're honest, we can all relate to that in some level. We can all relate to how COVID and the world events may be factors in that. I talked about that uh, last week. But, you know, I, uh, just straight up, I did some soul searching over the last few months about those valley periods in my life. And um, the Lord helped me pinpoint something that was a common denominator in all of those particular times, and that common denominator was that I had lost my way in applying and a grasping onto a simple thing, which is the grace of God towards me. It was easy for me to talk to others about the grace of God, but somewhere along the way in those valleys, I wasn't applying it and living in it for me and, and, and experiencing the power of it. And I just needed to get that out, out there as I started the message today because I have some things to say to you about that. And it's important to me that you know that as I'm doing that, I'm coming to you who's, as someone who spent some time in the valley and understands that. So we're going to uh, be looking today uh, at Luke chapter 7, Luke chapter 7. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, I hope you have them with you, uh, either in print or maybe on your screen somewhere, but you'll want to follow along because I'm going to do what I did last week, which I'm going to take you through a story uh, of a moment in the life of Jesus, and we're going to go kind of verse by verse and just watch it unfold. I'm excited about that with you. Um, And I'll tell you that This particular story is one of my favorites in the life of Jesus, and I'll tell you why. Because it's a picture of all that I aspire to be as a Christ follower. We're going to meet a woman in this passage who fully gets the grace of God, the love of God, the forgiveness of God, and as a result, her whole life 
is transformed. We're going to also meet a man, a religious leader, so immersed in his religion, so respected in his religion, so, and you could say powerful in his religion, yet so far from God. A man who holds all the answers, has all the answers, looked up to by society, but actually he's never been changed. Total contrast. This actually happens all the time. It's sad to say. Many people who attend church, don't care the name, don't care the denomination, but I'm just saying there's so many people who attend church their whole lives, but never actually live out a different life. Yes, they say and do the right things externally, but there's been no heart transformation that only comes in Christ. And really what I'm going for today is I want you to see a contrast. I want you to live in the contrast as we go to the message and especially as we watch this woman and how she responds to Jesus. Now, I titled the message, We Bow Down, and you'll figure out that very shortly why. Um, but it's because in her, we're going to see the heart that God's going for in us. And what he's going after is something I just call passionate adoration. I haven't trademarked that or anything, but it's just how I, how I think about it. Uh, passionate adoration of his son. I believe this woman in scripture here is one of the most impactful women in all of scripture, if, in fact, if not in fact one of the most impactful people in all of the Bible. I find the story to be a wake-up call for me, hopefully for you, because it is so easy to become apathetic and non-responsive and flat as a believer when you're not pressing in and embracing the grace of God towards you. And I would ask you, as we begin, just be honest with yourself. Has that been happening in your life? Is that what you're experiencing? Is that what you would say if you're honest? No judgment here, just is that, is that it? I believe God wants to do something in your heart today to wake you up, to experience something that is going to shatter some of the things holding you back. The point of the story is the more you comprehend the grace and forgiveness you've received from God, the more power you're going to have to fight the despair and the flatness and all that stuff that happens when you're in the valley. So I just have three things we're going to be talking about today. I'm going to get you to understand the situation. It's always good to do that when you're uh, in the Gospels, the four Gospels. We have four of them, by the way, in the New Testament. They're there on, for a reason, to give you so many different angles on Jesus. But I'm going to help you understand the situation. Then I want to talk about the obstacles to passionate adoration. And then we're going to talk about the fruit that can come out in your life. You want this fruit. Trust me, you want it. All right, so here's the first thing. If you're taking notes today, understand the situation. Understand the situation. Let's read together in verse 36. You can just follow along. One of the Pharisees asked him, that's Jesus. He's at the 
point uh, in his ministry where his fame is just, just spreading like wildfire throughout the land. He asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house, Jesus did, and he reclined at the table. Now, this meal, this ain't just sort of like hanging out in the backyard, a couple guys over barbecue. This is a meal that would involve others, um, a large group perhaps, uh, um, Certainly other Pharisees would be there. Now, normally when a guest is invited in this way by a person of this stature, uh, it is uh, a way of honoring the person coming. It's a meal of honor. But what we're going to see later in verses 44 to 46 is that this Pharisee did not intend to honor Jesus, that this Pharisee didn't hold out any admiration for him at all. Maybe... The whole thing was about curiosity. Maybe it was jealousy. Maybe, maybe it amused him. I don't know. But what the Pharisee doesn't know is that he is going to be the subject of a very punchy heart expose by Jesus. Um, by the way, that's the risk you take when you invite Jesus over to dinner. Um, uh, now, I want to zero in on the key players. We've seen two, but let me, let, there's really a trifold here. We have the Pharisee, we have the sinner, and we have the Savior. Now, read along with me. We'll get some more under our belts here. Verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table, that's Jesus, in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster, alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet. Now, I'm not sure how she got in the house. And we'll talk a little more about that. Uh, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Now, just picture this in your mind as we're reading. And wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, now if you like to underline things in your Bibles, underline that phrase, he said to himself. I'm going to be coming back to that. It's in his mind. He's thinking this. Now, it's, a, it's sort of passive aggressive. He's not really letting Jesus in on what's really going on, but he's thinking to himself. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. That word touching is important because um, according to the law, to the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, um, she would be seen as unclean like a leper or an adulterer uh, due to her sin. And um, any religious man would be considered unclean if they allowed that person to touch them. That's what the Pharisee's thinking about right now, because he knows the law so well. Jesus doesn't seem to be worried, though, does he? Verse 39 says, For she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Now, verse 37, we meet this woman. She's specifically labeled a sinner. Um, 
I mean, everyone that came to Jesus in the Bible is a sinner. Okay, let's not let's get that clear. But there's something interesting, unusual. Uh, Luke, the writer of this gospel, is particularly wanting to make that point. Why? Now, I could spend ten minutes on what all the commentaries have to say, um, but the bo- the bottom line is um, we're not exactly sure. But she probably was a prostitute, and that means she would not be thought well of by any of the men or women in the community. She was essentially an outcast, like the lepers, like anyone else unclean. More to come on that in a bit. Now, we've briefly met this guy named uh, uh, the Pharisee in verse 40, but uh, this Pharisee has a name. His name is Simon. That is a very common name in the New Testament. You're going to meet a lot of Simon, so don't... don't uh, don't mix them all up uh, and uh, assume they're all bad, you know, bad dudes just because of this guy. He kind of gives Simon a bad name, but there's a lot of Simons. This is Simon the Pharisee. And uh, let's just be reminded who the Pharisees are or were. Pharisees were the most influential Jewish religious leaders in Israel. The very name Pharisee um, carries meaning from the Hebrew word to separate. These were separators. Separate from what? To separate from anything that the law said was unclean. Except the problem is what these guys did, they were so zealous about it and so into it that they wanted to take it to the extreme and really go out of their way publicly to make sure everyone knew just how good they were at staying away from anything remotely unclean. In fact, they even came up with their own extra commandments on unclean, uncleanliness so that they could really make a nice public display of how good they were. Obsessive compulsives about their cleanliness, their religious superiority. But as you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're going to see time and time again Jesus exposing them to be all form and no substance as proud, self-righteous, bitter, envious, spiritual frauds, and even lovers of money. Notice verse 39. I love this phrase. He said to himself, this is in his mind, in his thoughts. He's accusing Jesus of not being a prophet. If this man were a prophet, he would have known. Any prophet would have known. He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. It says in verse 40, and Jesus answering said to him. Now, wait a second. That's, that's, that's one of those nuggets as you read patiently through the Bible, you catch. How did Jesus answer him? I mean, this guy's thinking this in his mind. Jesus just looks at him. And responds. That's what I love about Jesus, man. There's never a moment where he's not in control. There's never a moment where he doesn't know what we're thinking. There's never a moment where there's a microscopic element in the universe where Jesus doesn't uphold it with his righteous right hand. Get in on that power this morning.
Now Jesus says, verse 40, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he, Simon, answered, I like this, say it, teacher. It's kind of like Jesus is like, oh yeah, Simon, I'll read your mind right now. I'll answer the question you, not, you actually never spoke out loud. You never had the courage to say it out loud, but you said it in your mind. I'm going to prove something to you. You want to see a prophet? This is what he says. Verse 41. It's a parable. Many parables in the Bible. This one is a very clear one. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. A denarii was a day's wage. Pick the career, I don't really care. It's a day's wage, so 500 days wages when you do the math. Fair chunk of change, eh? Okay? And another one owned, and the other one 50, verse 42. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. So both of them, regardless of the fact that they both owed a debt, one was massive, one was big-ish, um, they were both bankrupt. They both had no way of paying that debt, and he canceled it. Now comes the all-important question. Right to Simon. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, and I just underlined this in my Bible for comic effect, I suppose, I love that, uh, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. Simon senses a trap. And he, Jesus, said to him, you have judged rightly. Now, there are many parables in Scripture that are complex. In fact, some no one understood or, uh, unless uh, Jesus had to explain it to him, even his own disciples. But this one was straightforward. I mean, you have two guys, two debts, one's 500, one's 50, both forgiven. Who's going to love them more? Obvious answer, not hard. You ever been forgiven a big debt? I mean, you know, a crushingly large debt. I'm not talking about like you were out last week for dinner at the keg with a couple and they picked up the tab. And then later on, you're like, you said to your, your buddy or your girlfriend, hey, you know what? We gotta, I, owe you, I owe you for, for that dinner. And they're like, don't worry about it. I'm not talking about that kind of debt. That, when that happens, that's just nice. That's wonderful. Love it. Love it. Trust me, I like that. But, um, uh, I, and I don't want to diminish that, but it's a whole other thing when someone forgives a debt, a crushing debt that you had no hope of paying. And if that's ever happened in your life, it produces a complex set of emotions, gratitude, shock, awe, Love even, wonder, ungratefulness. You get it. You get what I'm talking about. And that's the point Jesus is making. When you realize the sin that dwells within and you realize the magnitude of the debt that Christ paid for you personally because of his sacrifice on the cross in your place, it's supposed to invoke something in you. It's supposed to invoke gratitude and love 
and adoration and affection. Well, Simon here, due to his hard heart, he's not picking up what Jesus is laying down and he gives the, quote, right answer. But notice even within his answer, verse 33, you know, it's just the one I suppose, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. Now, that phrase, I suppose, uh, by the way, it's in every translation of the English Bible uh, in some way. Um, I don't want to read too much into it. This is just me here. But why is it that I smell both um, reluctance and um, resentment in that answer. This is why Jesus now in verse 44 moves from parable to applying it now. Parable to reality. And it, this is something for us. Verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. In the one man we see a heart that will not soften before God. In the other woman we find a heart that could not be softer before God. One who has rejected passionate adoration, the other one who has it. And since passionate adoration is what I really want to get into uh, your head and heart uh, today, um, I'm going to look at it on two angles. First, I got to talk about the obstacles. What gets in the way of it in our lives? And then the fruit, because I want you to see and want the fruit and, and, and hope for the fruit and know that God has something for you. In it. So let's start with the second thing today, obstacles to passionate adoration in our lives. I'm just going to give you three. I could come up with 10, but these, these three stand out. Number one, pride. Pride. Friends, pride is the single greatest deterrent to life-giving worship. You have, think about it. You got two people in the exact same situation, exact opportunity, Simon and the woman, and yet Totally opposite responses. In this case, for Simon, it's pride. His greatest error was that he did not think that he was a sinner. Or maybe on some days he thought, well, if I am, it's, it's small and I'll deal with it by doing this little thing or that. Or it's not that big of a deal. I mean, I'm a Pharisee. I've got this down. But the other thing about pride is you really don't think about your sin or need forgiveness, but one thing that comes with pride, it always does, is the focusing on the sins of other people. I call these people pride uh, sin hunters. And sin hunters who are proud are blind to the reality of their own sin. They 
stand in judgment over other people like this man stands in judgment over the, the woman. That's one thing. But, but, but way worse than that is the fact that while he literally has Jesus the Messiah in his very house, he stands in judgment over the Son of God. In his mind, Simon judges Jesus Christ, God on earth. He has the forgiveness of sins, eternal life, literally right before him in his living room. He's actually talking to him. And instead of seeing him for who he is or receiving what he would have to say, he judges him. Do you know why pride is so devastating? It's because it stops you from being able to see anything clearly, especially yourself. You see that in his life. He can't see himself truly. He can't see the woman truly. He can't see Jesus truly. He can't see anything correctly. What I think is going on also because I've seen this in the lives of some churchgoers. Simon probably thought he was being godly. Simon probably thought he was doing God a favor in thinking this way, as in, look at how discerning I am. I see what's going on here, and this is not pleasing to the God of the Bible. It... Um, it really does grieve me, you know, how, many, how so many people can be so close to God because they come to church and hear the gospel and engage in worship and yet be so far up from him because of their inability to truly humble themselves before Jesus and receive the forgiveness he offers. How many services they might attend, how many opportunities that they have. How many books, Christian books, books on doctrine, books on, on orthodoxy that they have read and could recite and maybe even teach, and yet they remain indifferent. And I'm not down on any of those things, by the way, but indifference is a problem. Here's Simon. That's his problem. Friends, watch out for this in your life. Watch out for how you evaluate others. Be careful. We, I don't know what it is with us. We just have a tendency to obsess about the sins of others, about the speck in someone else's eye, and we quite happily tune out on the two-by-four in our own eye. You got to start by evaluating yourself. First, that's where it starts. You, you, you have to start with, I am a sinner, as opposed to you're the sinner. That's where it begins. No one will ever be reconciled to Jesus Christ and know him without recognizing first, I am the problem, me. I'm the problem for my life. That's when we start to see the opportunity for real change that can come from knowing him and true love will flow. Simon has none of it because he was so filled with pride. Here's the second obstacle, cynicism. 
cynicism. By definition, cynicism means distrust. It can happen because of arrogance. It can happen because of selfishness. Um, sometimes it can happen uh, because of tragedy or hurt. And uh, if you are here today and you are cynical towards the things of God, but it's because of some tragedy or hurt in your life, maybe be inexplicable right now. I, 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 I want to be pastorally sensitive to that fact. I would even tell you that I would, I, I'm going to take that out, park it over here, because I would treat that cynicism related to tragedy and pain and trauma as a separate sermon. But there are many avenues outside of that to cynicism. There's a bitterness in cynicism. It's someone who sneers. It describes Simon perfectly. Cynicism kills worship. Think about it. Simon here, one of the few people in all of history who's got a pastoral visit from Jesus at his house, can't see it. I mean, who else can boast of this? Who else can say, I've had, a, I've had Jesus over to dinner. But to Simon, it means nothing. No worship from his life, no love, no adoration. Instead, what does he have? Cynicism, judgment, and contempt. Notice how Jesus exposes it in Simon, verse 44. And then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. Now, we tend to pass over little things like that because we live in uh, Ontario, 2022. But um, water for the feet was a common courtesy for uh, any guest invited. I mean, think about someone coming to your house. You offer to take their coat. You hang it up for them. That's basic courtesy, right? Well, in these days, okay, 2,000 years ago, in uh, the Middle East, in, in Israel, in a dusty climate, it was considered minimum courtesy. And if you were wealthy and you had employees or servants working for you and you didn't feel like actually uh, washing their feet, you'd have someone do it. But make no mistake, if you were there to honor someone, you would definitely make sure their feet were uh, washed. Everyone who was at the party or at the gathering would notice this dishonoring of Jesus. I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Do you see the contrast? You gave me no kiss. Again, a very common courtesy to a guest in your house in those days. And even in many cultures today, this is still the norm, sort of a normal courtesy to invite someone in. And um, Jesus says, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Verse 46, you did not anoint my head with oil. Now, you want to really honor a guest, you would anoint their hair, their head with oil. But uh, it says, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Oil and ointment were not cheap back then. So that was 
quite the statement to make when you're having a party. Don't miss this. See what Jesus is looking for. Jesus is looking for the affection and longing of his people upon him. He is inviting you. He is inviting the adoration of him for all those he has saved. This is why I am praying for any of you here today who have never truly tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You haven't come to a point of laying it down before Jesus Christ saying, I just give up. I take all of my sin, all of my pain, all of the mess of my life, and you look to Jesus for the first time. And you say, he cannot fail me. He will erase everything. He will cause my sins to be forgiven. He will cleanse me. He will renew me. He will redeem me. He will reconcile me to God. He will pave the way for me to eternity where sin will cease and there will be no tears. For many or some here today, that is the opportunity that the Lord is pressing in on your heart. But if you are filled with cynicism, you shut the door on what God wants to do in your life. Here's the final obstacle, legalism. Legalism. We hear that term all the time in churches now. Sometimes it's used very wrongly, like, you know, a guy opens his Bible or tells you that he's doing uh, a regular quiet times with the Lord, and you're like, you're a legalist. No, he's not. That's not what's legalism. Or you hear about people, committed Christians, uh, trying to live out the commands of the New Testament, to th things that would show the fruit of the Spirit, and go, well, that's legalism. It sounds like you're trying. No, that's not what legalism is. Let's, let's be very clear on what legalism is. Here's what legalism is. Legalism says, I follow rules to get salvation, as opposed to what Christianity says, which is, I have a relationship with Jesus. He's my salvation, okay? Legalism is seeking to achieve acceptance from God through my good works. It kind of sounds like this. I will work for my salvation because it's really what I do that matters. I'm going to do certain things. I'm going to say certain prayers. I'm going to, I'm going to be and act and, and, and appear like a certain person, which I hope will outdo all the bad things I've ever done. I'm going to work hard at it because, man, God will see it and God will owe me. And, uh, and, and then I'll be righteous. I will solve my own sin problem. as opposed to relying on the grace of Jesus Christ that he freely offers to take care of the sin problem for you. When a legalist hears a pastor or anyone talking about Jesus doing it all on the cross as a substitute in your place, the legalist kind of goes, thanks, but no thanks, I think I got it covered. Do you know what I do? Have you seen the things I'm doing in the community? Do you know the way I live my life, the way I've organized my family, the way I don't do these things, the way I do do these things? I'll get the solution on my own. 
Jesus exposes legalism in Simon. Verse 47, do you see it? Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven loves little. That's what Jesus is saying here. Both people are bankrupt. Simon thinks he owes 50 or nothing. Jesus says you're bankrupt. And the woman, who is also bankrupt. Simon actually thinks, well, if anyone's bankrupt, it's her. But if he could just see his own heart, the pride, the cynicism, the legalism, but he can't. So he thinks he doesn't have any sin, or if he does, it's a little that he can deal with. So he doesn't value the idea of grace, and therefore he sees no need to be forgiven, and therefore there's no love for God. But I'm telling you, that when you embrace this idea of, I'm, I was completely dead in my sin, or I am dead in my sin, when you understand that, that I have sinned against a holy and righteous and perfect God, I have no ability, no ability on my own to close the gap between who I am and who he is. When you see that and recognize how unclean you are before Christ, that is when you will explode with adoration and love, which is exactly what you see with that woman. But a life filled with religious rituals, legalism, somehow thinking you can make atonement for your own sins, you're not going to have passion and adoration. I can tell you that right now. That is saying to some of you today, whether you're in this room or online, that your whole life has been one religious ritual. But religion is not Christianity. You can't do anything to earn favor with God. It's been done for you by the love and grace of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for your sins. And it's applied to you if you will receive it, if you will bow the knee to King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, that's the obstacles. Enough of the obstacles. Let's get to the fruit. This is the third thing today, the fruit of passion and adoration. I got three of them here. And there's probably a lot more in the Bible. Number one, a hunger for God. Look at verse 37. It says, and behold, see, he wants us to pay attention to this. Behold, look what's happening, is what he's saying. A woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that, she, that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. So just live in the text with me for a moment here. You could pass over this a little too quick. Imagine the shame this woman would have to deal with entering a home filled with powerful, religiously respected men in the community that everyone looked up to, and she knows that she's an outcast. Imagine the shame as she tries to just push through the insecurity of that to enter the home. She knows what everyone's going to be thinking of her. All of the Pharisees' friends... And she's saying to herself, 
I'm so hungry to see the Savior. Nothing's going to stop me. Nothing is going to stop me from seeing my Savior. There is no greater pursuit you can have as a believer. There is no greater way for a pastor to boil it down to than that statement. Nothing's going to stop me from pursuing Jesus. What a picture of faith. You see, her hunger overcame her hesitancy. Her hunger overcame her hesitancy. I see such courage here. What a picture of faith. There's been some debate among scholars on whether or not she had already come to faith and now just just had to see him again, or whether it was in this moment that she was being drawn by the Lord at this time to the moment of her salvation. I mean, I don't know the answer to that question. But it's very likely that given that Jesus was so popular in preaching all over the place, she's at least heard him preach. I mean, he, she's probably heard things like, I don't know, Matthew 11, where Jesus was preaching and said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I, I will give you rest. I'll give you the rest from trying to earn acceptance from God. I'll give you rest from religious ritual. I'll give you rest from all those things that are binding you. I can do it. So maybe she heard it and had already come to Christ, already was a believer, but just had to see him. Or maybe this was the moment that doesn't really matter to the story. She's, nothing's going to stop me. I'm going to see the Savior. I don't care who's there. I don't care how I look. I don't care how they think. You know what? Some of us today just need to be freed from uh, that anxiety of what other people think of us. Are you not tired of it? I'm tired of it. I am sick, and, I am sick to death of thinking and worrying about what are they going to think? What's, he, what's she going to think of this? Tired of performance. I'm hungry for Jesus. That's got to be my drive. It's got to be your drive. Do you know what's amazing about this passage? This woman doesn't say a single word, and yet she says everything. We've got everyone else talking, and yet this woman who all is really doing is coming, bowing, crying, and worshiping. There are believers here today, I know, because I, I know times where I've been like this. We're, we're walking the walk. We're doing the discipleship classes. We're growing a bit. But we hear a passage like this, and there's a, there's a hesitancy that comes, maybe a little bit of fear, and you're like, I know, I know. You're, you're like, I don't want to go all out, because if I go to the place where this woman appears to be, I'm afraid of what God's going to ask me to do. I'm afraid of what he's going to ask me to give up. I'm afraid of what I'm going to have to let go. And you see, the reason you're there is because you've got a distorted view of your Savior and what he offers you, how much he loves you, and what he wants to do in your life. Let go of that. 
like her, I want you to be to a place where your thing is, I just want Jesus to be central. And I'm telling you, when you get there, and I'm praying today, it starts today. I'm praying that you'll know the presence of God by his Holy Spirit in a way that you've never known before. Here's the second thing. Second fruit of adoration. Brokenness. Okay? Brokenness before God. Studying this week, I was so affected by the picture of this woman coming in. Look at verse 38. If this is in brokenness, I don't know what is. Verse 38, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now, notice Luke. I love Luke. Uh, all the Gospels I love, but Luke, Luke's a historian. And historians, if you've ever met academics, they tend to really love details. Luke records everything. I'm surprised he didn't describe more, like the jewelry she was wearing or the braid in, in her hair. Or what, what, but Luke wants us to see the progression of everything so that we feel it, not just read it. She enters the room with hunger, immediately broken. Now, Jesus' feet are exposed, okay? In those days, when you're at a dinner, uh, you, uh, the tables were very low to the ground, so you would recline. Usually they'd have lots of cushions, so you could be very comfortable. But, but when you recline, as you can picture, your feet are going to be up a bit. She approaches him, bows down, begins to worship him in front of a bunch of religious Pharisees who would immediately go, blasphemy, oh my goodness. She fell down before him. She anoints him to honor him. But what you got to see is the moment she's before him, she's so aware of who he is, and she becomes so aware again of who she is. She can't control her emotions. She literally loses it on the spot. That word there in the text, uh, some of your Bibles say weeping. There might be other words used, but the Greek there in verse 38 means to rain showers, okay? To like pouring it out. Now, I know there's a lot of people here, especially the guys, you probably can't remember the last time you cried. Um, I can think of some times in my life where I have cried. Not just, I'm talking full-on, sobbing, broken, on the floor, all the fluids coming out. Do you know what I'm talking about? That's the kind of weeping, rain showers going on here. I, I, I think of the day that maybe, no, I think of the day I'm longing for when I first see Jesus after I die. And uh, I wonder, what will I do? What will I be like? How will I act? What will I say?
how can I expect to hold myself together when I stand before the one who's done for me what the Bible tells me he's done for me? How can I do anything else except what this woman's doing here? I'll break. I'll weep with joy to be in front of this one. How can anyone hold themselves together when they see the one who has given them life, our perfect Son of God, who sacrificed for our sins when we deserved death, hell, and God's wrath? How do you express your gratitude and thanks for that one who saved you from such a predicament? You'll sit there and you'll break. And as a sidebar, I've thought of a number of times I've talked to believers who've been frustrated in life and they're like, I can't wait to get to heaven. I got some questions for Jesus. Oh yeah, I got a list. You think you'll be talking when you're in front of the lion of the tribe of Judah? You'll be weeping. And you'll know true, perfect love. Now, I apologize for the break. Worst thing as a pastor is when you weep. You're supposed to do that after because I'm here to serve you. <laughs> uh, there's a cultural thing going on here. I, 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 I debated whether I would put in the sermon when I wrote it, but I, 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 I got to talk about it. When she let her hair down, that was a no-no in that time. You, do, you don't do that, okay? You, you, not around men. You keep that hair up and you stay out of sight. But around the Pharisees, letting your hair down like this, shameful behavior, provocative behavior. The, the men in the room are now, if, if judging was here, it just went to there. And I'm like, what would be the equivalent today other than if after uh, today you went to the mall in Barrie and took off all your clothes and just started walking around the mall? I know that's a little graphic, but that's the kind of shamefulness that she's being judged for in her behavior. But guess what? She doesn't care. She's using what she has to worship her savior. She's not interested in the legalism, the judgment I don't care about the rules. I've got to express my love for him with all that I am. See, that's the fruit of brokenness. I don't care what people are saying. I'm not intimidated by other people. Some of you today are being drawn, are being called to draw closer to him, to take your faith deeper. It's time for you today to say, I don't care. Oh, there's freedom there. Take it from one very imperfect man who has had to come to that place a few times. Final thing, affection for God. True Christians are going to have more than just thoughts about God. They will feel affection for God. I'm not saying emotion is the measurement of where you are at with God. But emotion is part of being human. You can't understand grace and truly, truly, and remain unaffected. Some of us 
have been sitting in church for years, and we've never once, not once for a second, been like this woman. I know, because I've been a pastor long enough, that there are people here today reading this passage with me, and there's a sadness in you, because you know why? You are thinking about a time in your life, I don't know, two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, where you were just like this. And something came along, I don't know what it was, it came along and it kind of messed you up and since then it hasn't been like this. And you, you look back and you, you look back and go, I want to be like that again, but then you get all bottled up because it's not happening and you don't know how to get past the, that, the shackles of it. I know that's true for some of you. God will break that if you'll bow before him and call out. He so wants to do that in your life. I'm not talking about emotionalism. I'm talking about affections driven by the cross, the resurrection, his ruling and reigning as king now. His lordship, his promise to never leave you or forsake you, no matter what you feel right now. Some of you are in a valley and you feel he's gone. He ain't gone. He's with you. Don't trust your senses all the time. They lie to you. The critical thing is knowing what your affection is rooted in. It's not just wild emotionalism. It's rooted in the forgiveness of sins that Jesus has given you. Verse 47, and then I'll close. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Verse 49, those who were with him at the table began to say among themselves, I bet they did, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He did not say, let's be clear, that I see that you have a spirituality about you in something. Your sins are forgiven. Go in No, he's saying, without it being explained here, it's implied in the text and it's expounded throughout Scripture, your faith in me has saved you. Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. The woman loves him because she understands how forgiven she is. It's her faith in him. In who he claimed to be that he offers what he claims to offer and that she can just trust his promises. Where do you get that faith? It's a gift from God, the Bible says. Salvation by grace through faith. Faith justifies us. It makes us righteous before God. It saves us. Faith saves us. And if it's real, it'll produce a heart that wants to follow, wants to love him, wants to live out Jesus' commands. Three fruits the fruit of hunger, brokenness, and affection. Let's pray. Father, when we pray today, uh, I really want to pray, Lord, um, by the power of your Spirit, with the fruit of hunger, brokenness, and affection for you, because there is no one else worthy of it. There is no one else who deserves our tears, our brokenness, 
our being shattered before. And Lord, right now, for some of us, we've, we've never known you. Some people here today have never come to the place where they've said, Lord, I need you. I ask for forgiveness. I, I'm giving you my life. I, I, I realize for the first time, I can't, I cannot deal with my own sin and, and be right with you. Will you save me? Will you forgive me? Will you for, cleanse me? And Jesus' answer to you, if that's where you're at today, is I will. And I will come in and I will change you. And Lord, there are others here today. They love you. But there's hurt or there's some blockage of affection. I pray, Lord, without having to know any of the details because I'm just a guy. But you know them. You know what's going on in their lives. And right now I ask in the name of Jesus Christ to release your spirit and move amongst them today that they would be able to taste and see that the Lord is good.